Letter from Helvetica, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. Chapter 2 A Long and Winding Road. We decided that breakfast in our suite would be preferable to encountering humanity in the restaurant, especially as they were likely to be rather more fragrant than we. So we rang room service with utter recklessness and ordered five continental breakfasts to suite. Richard and I thought that before breakfast arrived, it might be a good opportunity to, at the very least, get the children abluted. But when we saw the shower, which was essentially a wet room and experienced its phenomenal water pressure, we all ended up having an extremely raucous, giggly and unashamedly childish, but that's mostly Richard and me, shower en famille. This was all well and good until I ran buck naked into the living room area of the suite, only to find the waiter carefully laying our breakfast out on the table. He behaved as though this was a daily occurrence and battered nary an eyelid, so I grabbed a towel from the bed and wrapped it around myself in a manner that I trusted was equally sanguine. The waiter asked if we would prefer to take breakfast outside on the balcony, which I thought would be a nice idea. Cool morning breeze and all. <laughs> when he flung open the windows, I was hit with such an incredible wall of heat that all of my instincts screamed at me to cast off my towel once more and let my sweat glands behave like a lawn sprinkler. Cheapers, the humidity. It's not like this in Surrey, you know. I had the waiter carry the breakfast table outside regardless and we sat close to the sliding door so that we can enjoy the view at the same time as savouring the occasional waft of air conditioning. We flipped idly through the hotel literature as we ate and, given the fatigue that was still somewhat pervasive, we fantasised about just staying there for the duration and sampling what looked like the most gorgeous spa. The kids were absolutely gagging to go and swim in one of the huge outdoor pools, but no, we had set out on an adventure, and adventure we were jolly well going to have. So it was propitious that a few minutes later, a knock on the door announced the arrival of our guide, mentor and fount of all knowledge, Martin the German. I vividly remember the first time I saw Richard. He looked like such an Aryan god with his blonde hair and his toned muscles that I assumed he must be a complete prick. Thank the good Lord, he was sufficiently interested in me to put in the required hard work over the following six months to convince me otherwise. And what I eventually discovered was that Richard actually had no idea he was such a hunk, which of course made him doubly endearing. Standing framed in the door to our hotel room, Martin had a similar look. The curly, tumbling flaxen locks, the tanned muscles straining against his white T-shirt. 
But, in contrast, he had the air of a man who was unshakably convinced that he was an utter hottie. And when he spoke, he had one of those prissy accents that Germans who think they speak faultless English have. He overpronounced his O sounds, which no doubt he thought made him sound like an Etonian, but in fact made him sound like Marlena Dietrich, only less butch. I must confess, I was rather disappointed it was not Ani Vanuatu who was to be our guide, but that's what you get when you work for a global PLC, I suppose. Martin said that there was a van waiting outside to take us to the boat, and at that point all thoughts of staying at the hotel evaporated and butterflies frolicked in my tummy at the thought of seeing our new home. Much frenzied activity ensued as we hurled the few clothes and toiletries we had taken out of our luggage back in again. Staff were summoned, luggage was whisked away on trolleys, and bills were paid, all with Teutonic efficiency. If the family Wesley had been a train, then by golly, we would be running on time if Martin had anything to do with it. Sorry doing the whole racial stereotyping thing, aren't I? But damn it, Martin is straight out of Central Casting's Wehrmacht cupboard. He piled us into a Mercedes Natch minibus, and off we sped through Port Vila, tantalising glimpses of a life unknown, hurtling past the window, shop fronts and houses, a vibrantly coloured market, a Chinese restaurant, surprising amounts of traffic, and then, before I felt I had even drawn breath, we were pulling up at the wharfside, parking alongside what I recognised from photos as the Planta Vida research vessel. Gloria! Trust lovely Douglas to take the romantic approach, rather than the corporate, and name the boat after his missus. Now there were Ni Vanuatu everywhere, ushering us aboard, making our vast mountain of luggage magically disappear, introducing themselves, smiling, chatting. It was at once informal and business-like. Again, typical Douglas. But it gave me a moment of doubt that my somewhat ponderous and irredeemably academic research style will be able to keep pace with this well-oiled machine. Not for the first time, I might add. I've always been slightly bemused by Douglas's faith in me. Once on board, the kids all ran to the prow of the boat. Prow? Is that the right word? The pointy bit at the front? They wanted to ensure that they had the best view of us casting off and heading out into the open water. Richard, too, was beginning to become as animated as I had seen him since Bangkok. What with his love of all things fishy? We had previously been told that we might see Turtle and the famous Dugong on our journey up to Babango, but it was the prospect of seeing dolphins swimming alongside our vessel that provided the biggest thrill of anticipation. As it was, we were somewhat taken aback by the considerable swell of the sea. I think our collective assumption was that the South Pacific would be a benign body of water like corrugated glass. But as we headed southwest, 
which was perversely exactly the opposite direction we wanted to go, and rounded Devil's Point away from the relative shelter of Melee Bay, we encountered waves that were just humongous. Our boat was substantial enough with its big thrumming engines, but a cruise ship it was not, and we landlubbers took some time to become accustomed to its swaying and bucking and rearing. What am I saying? Truth is, we all clung on for dear life for the first half an hour, and it was only the calm and sure-footed way the crew went about their business that ultimately convinced us this was, in fact, situation normal. Thank God none of us discovered a previously unknown predisposition for seasickness. Otherwise, it could have been quite a miserable journey. And at least it wasn't cold. After a while... Once our sea legs had been gained and the boat had been pointed northward, we began to take in the extraordinary landscape that was sliding by. A very smiley, very stocky Ni Vanuatu in his mid-thirties approached us. He, in common with the rest of the local crew, wore an off-white button-up shirt, mostly unbuttoned, that flapped and snapped in the strong breeze, and shorts of a similar colour, with the Planta Vida logo discreetly stitched onto the back pocket. I covertly shared with Richard the concept that if all the crew were to open their shirts at the same time, and in the right direction, it might speed our progress somewhat. He responded that he was more than happy to suggest the idea to the crew if I were willing to do the same. Punched him in the arm, a singularly useless gesture given the size of him, and smiled back at the friendly face drawing near. We heading north now, so thus hard island we passing. Sure enough, on our starboard, um, port, uh, right hand side, was an island shaped just like a shallow Spanish hat. It's actually called. Eratoka, but we call it Hat Island, cause we call a spade a spade, and we call a hat a hat. A phrase which just set him off in such a roar of laughter that I was immediately put in mind of Dr. Hibbert. I suggest you Google it. So sorry, got so much more to tell you about our journey, but it's going to have to wait, I'm afraid. Caleb has just found a centipede which, I kid you not, is as big as his arm. I think I need to go and investigate. Not least given his potential for using such a myriapedal brute as a weapon of mass destruction against his sisters. Also notwithstanding the bugger's ability to bite. That's the centipede, not Caleb. Or is it? My... But there's a whole new world of strange things to discover here. Seriously, though, email us, Uncle John. Otherwise, you'll only manage to write three more letters or something like that before it's time for us to come home. And I want to hear all about what's happening in Helvetica. Lots of love from us all. I'll get the kids to write too in the next one. Abs. Kiss, kiss.
john.stotter at penstrothergrange.co.uk Helvetica, Saturday, April 11th. Dearest Abby, I have often thought that if only I had more humility, I would be perfect. That said, and let's face it, I wasn't the first to say it, I have bowed to your infinitely superior wisdom and realised that my constipated determination only to write letters on the pulp of rare mahoganies felled in the forests of Belize may have been misguided. So, not only have I yielded to your plea to commune via email, but in typical Stotter fashion, I have also got myself a fancy, personalised, top-of-the-range web domain. Like it? Told you your grizzled old uncle wasn't so shabby when it comes to all things techy. Although, I should confess that when I was first learning to text, I thought perfectly understandably in my view, that the abbreviation LOL meant lots of love. You can therefore imagine the distress I managed to cause when Cousin Felicity sent me a message to tell me that her mother, Aunt Claudia, had died, and I responded with LOL. Still makes me wake in the watches of the night, covered with that clammy, prickly feeling that only genuine idiocy can induce. So, my dear old thing, of course you are right, and I was being a clot. Hadn't realised quite how long it takes for a letter to reach your part of the world, although, given that I've marched over most of it, you might think it would have occurred to me before. I blame my cloistered village life and approaching senility. However, I wish to strike a deal with you. I have a pathological antipathy towards those digital forms of communication that encourage the English language to be shredded, leaving only scraps. I tried Facebook once, but not only did I barely understand a word anyone said, I was also stupefied by the tedium of it all. Texting only gets me into trouble, see above, and twittering is for twits despite the erudition of the inestimable Mr. Fry. Therefore, while I am more than happy to avail ourselves of Berners-Lee's magnum opus, I do think we should continue to correspond in traditional letter-writing manner. So, if you agree that our epistles must contain thought, wit, and narrative, then I am content for them to be conveyed in binary format. I shall take your silence as an indication of your concord. Exceptionally glad that you've all arrived safely, and I'm on tenterhooks to hear about the rest of your journey and your house, and whether there is currently a Caleb-shaped lump distorting the tummy of a giant centipede. But patience will be my watchword. Clearly you had something of a marathon voyage, although it does sound as if it could have been so much worse. I have, I know, regaled you in the past with many a tale of the ghastly and convoluted expeditions I sometimes had to endure in the army. I seem to recall it was my recounting of such that cured you of insomnia. One does aim to please. And I was glad to read that you were able to savour the delights of Sydney, if only fleetingly. It was always one of my favourite cities, not least because of a prolonged encounter I had there in the late sixties with a young woman by the name of, and I kid you not, Sheila. And there was you thinking I was going to say Bruce. 
This Sheila was from Perth, but Perth in bonnie Scotland. If memory serves, she'd emigrated from there to Australia only a few years previously with her parents. You will, of course, recollect the 70s song Arms of Mary by the snappily titled beat combo Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. Google it right back at you. Well, Sheila was my Mary, and she really was the girl who taught me all I had to know. We had this thing going where we would try and have sex in some form or another in all of Sydney's tourist spots. I therefore experienced a mild Pavlovian frisson in the M&S boxes department when you mentioned the opera house Bridge et al. A la recherche du temps perdu and then some. Of course, the opera house wasn't actually built then, but I'm sure you get the generally sordid picture. Actually, it wasn't sordid at all now that I come to think of it. It was just two young people having an inordinate amount of sex in some rather risky and risque places and having an inordinate amount of fun doing so. Amen to that. In the end, Sheila wearied of me and chose instead a real-life Bruce who was more blonde, more muscular and much more competitive than I. Typical Aussie who probably had a much bigger dick as well. So I slunk away to Sherman myself to sleep and dream of her now unattainable delights. Ah, such sorrow. Actually, I think that's round about when I was posted briefly and abortively to Aden, which took my mind off her and no mistake. Talking of blonde, irritating, picture-perfect specimens of manhood, I did rather enjoy your depiction of your German tour guide. I think it fair to say that I truly am a man of the world and have always taken people exactly as I find them. I have conversed, drank, laughed and fucked with virtually every race you might care to mention and have never once generalised that this or that was somehow more blighted than another simply because of a shared character trait or, even worse, because of the way that they looked. If I have ever disliked anyone, it was not because they came perchance from a particular geographical location or because they happened to share a singular genetic line, but because they were simply an inveterate asshole. But for heaven's sake, what happens to Germans the moment they traverse their borders outward bound? On their own soil, they could not be more friendly, hospitable, cultured, industrious, inventive, and yes, even humorous. But once freed from the confines of the fatherland, they have this most unfortunate tendency to metamorphose into loud-mouthed, inconsiderate, opinionated, arrogant boors. That being said, they also have the most admirable capacity to put blue noses out of joint with their willful abandonment of clothing at the drop of a hat, and everything else besides, which I wholeheartedly support and which probably makes up for all the rest. I leave you with this gem of wisdom then. The moment that Martin shamelessly strips naked, which evolution dictates that he must, you will know for certain that he is not all bad. I cannot make the same sweeping generalizations about Croatians, having never knowingly met any outside their own borders, until, that is, I met the new house elf. You have been listening to Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. 
starring Andrew McIntosh as John and Natalie Rolls as Abby, brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. The series is produced by Oliver Crocker, co-produced by Rob Cook, Tessa Crocker, Michelle DeSuta, Bryony Kelly, Tracy King, Paul Morris, Triona Palmer, Laura Pinifay, Lee Pointer, Valerie Rolls, Yulia Thurlow, and Andrew Ruff. And executive produced by Andrew Dyack, George Fairbrother, Edward Kellett, Sophie Pycroft, Amanda Rotherham, Kay Scoble, and Michael Seeley. Next time, another girl. If you'd like to binge Series 1 of Letter from Helvetica, you can unlock all eight episodes and behind-the-scenes content on patreon.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. To support our development of Series 2, we are accepting donations via coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica. Music